Welcome to the Three and a Half Walls podcast. I'm Austin Zwiebelman. I'm Jackson Morrill. I'm Josh Key. And I'm Daniel Green. And today we're going to be talking about John Carpenter's remake of A Thing from Another World. The Thing from Another World. Yeah, that was the uh, 50s movie. Yeah. The 1982 movie that came out two weeks after E.T. did. And three the, weeks after The Wrath of Khan, apparently. And on the same day as Blade Runner, I saw. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> what? Yeah. Don't put me on that. But that's part of why it did horribly, is that it came on the same day as fucking Blade Runner. Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Potty Mouth. This is a family podcast. No, Fuck that not. shit. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is the third episode. If they haven't caught on that this is rated M for Mature, then something's wrong with you. I just want to uh, bring attention to something. I think this is the first time where all four original members of Three and a Half Walls are here. Yeah, the Founding Fathers. Blade Runner <laughs> takes up so much sci-fi space. That's like releasing an action movie at the same weekend as Endgame. You wait like a month for that shit. <laughs> what was Blade Runner's box office run like? I'm curious. It was pretty big, I think. Mm. I'd assume it was big, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it was a pretty iconic movie. I mean, so was The Thing, but years later. You know what movie did have a huge-ass box office pull? E fucking T. Oh my god. Oh my god. I love it because E.T. looks very similar to the effects in The Thing if the if the thing was happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if the eyes weren't in the wrong places, but only in the right places. <laughs> and the voice was a bunch of modulated animals that sound like they're from not even a different planet, but a different galaxy instead of a chain-smoking woman. E.T. Photo. No, remember, remember when the guy from The Warriors suddenly turned and then his face exploded into that. That's E.T. Oh yeah, we're, the same we're talking about <laughs> talking about the uh, inspiration for Half-Life Zombies. I, I like how uh, like Pablo Picasso, I think, might have been still alive when this movie came out. He sits down, just sees the people transform, and he's like, that's it! <laughs> that's what I've been trying to say this whole fucking time! <laughs> Hieronymus Bosch. Oh, God! He did, he did all the art. <laughs> where, where, where it's just these colossal kind of Where's Waldo-looking, very dense paintings of just... Hell. So <laughs> What's our spoiler policy? Uh, spoiler policy is... The spoiler policy is this movie came out in 1982. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, like, this movie's special to me because I bring people in, ideally, who know nothing about it, mm-hmm. and that makes the movie way better. I remember I saw it knowing a few things about it, right, and that kind of... It didn't really ruin it for me. It still was very intense, but just seeing people's reactions to stuff for like the first time. Um, I just watched this movie. I literally just watched the thing for the first time like four hours ago, and then right after that, I watched the behind the scenes documentary. So I'm totally agreeing with Josh. <laughs> like I knew a little bit about this movie, but holy shit, like this was it holds up. Like, it really does hold up. I didn't once, like, sit down and just be like, ah, oh, that's such a stupid special effect that's so 80s. Like, it was 80s, but, like, who cares? Like, it was just really good. It works in its world, for sure. Yeah. Um, I came in knowing, like, a couple things. I had seen clips of the scene on the operating table where the rib cage turns oh. into a mouth. I've and from never there, seen that before. I have seen multiple... I've seen somehow clips from that multiple times. I don't know what source, but I've never really seen anything else. But enough like 
ancillary research that I've run across that crossed over with the thing, particularly when I was just into like digging for information on Dead Space 2, there was a lot of like crossover with the thing because it was a heavy inspiration for a lot of the body horror in the movie and later the atmosphere of Dead Space 3. The thing has basically permeated all of horror and thrillers mm-hmm. like Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight is basically a western remake of The Thing <laughs> down to having Kurt Russell in the movie <laughs> except you, you I, t- I can't spoil The Hateful Eight it came out within the last 10 years yeah, I mean, whatever no one well, saw it anyways I, I haven't seen it anyway it's <laughs> a Tarantino film it's, it's gotten you know, okay spoiler for The Hateful Eight if you uh, don't want to know the ending skip to this time code Austin you're gonna have to edit this in <laughs> Josh go ahead say what happened Oh, uh, it's not that important. Basically, Kurt Russell's character dies halfway through the movie mm. while he's playing very much of the McCready role. Yeah. Which is kind of sad. Tarantino also was inspired for Reservoir Dogs by the thing. So so it's the general we can't trust each other theme. There's a heavy dose of Cold War paranoia permeating this movie. TV Tropes actually states oh, that it's yeah. kind of like the perfect 80s movie because it mirrors the uh, Cold War paranoia and the AIDS crisis all at once. Oh my which God, is okay. wild. Which is probably people didn't like it. It was also it was very... every other movie around it was kind of happy, except maybe Wrath of Khan because Spock died. Well, Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't call it a happy movie. Harrison Ford lives. Bro, did you just spoil Wrath of Khan? Yes. <laughs> what the hell, Josh? Khan. Khan. <laughs> <laughs> The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few here, so... <laughs> oh, Sentinel Prime, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. <laughs> anyway, so we should probably get on track about the actual movie. Yeah, I mean... Totally. They, but, like, it starts off in a way where if they don't know anything, lots of people get real, real uh, uppity about the beginning. They get, they get freaked out. Because it's just a, a helicopter trying to take out a single lone dog in the Arctic. Christine Horribly, by the way. I showed it to Christine. You Christine is a friend Christine. of who's a dog lover and she didn't even know what the monster was and that was incredible she because was... this movie is so good at the slow burn of revealing what the monster is where if you don't know it that just magnifies the screenplay even more there is a point where it's like if you're aware of the plot of the thing you can almost immediately tell and also if you speak Norwegian because the Norwegian guy in the beginning I actually pulled the translation of what he said. We've got the line verbatim. (laughs) I can't speak the Norwegian part, but the translation is, get the hell away, it's not a dog, it's a thing, it's imitating a dog, it's not real, get away, idiots. Now somebody do it in a Christopher Walken voice. (laughs) Sutil Helvete, a com der vek. Detter icky and bicky. Detter and I'm not. I thought you were gonna do a Christopher Walken accent, not a German. No, my my Christopher Walken is off, and also it's fucking Norwegian. I don't speak any Norwegian. We were trying to read. You didn't handle it. You fucking read it. No, it's both. Both are on there. What is wrong with you guys? This whole thing's getting edited. I just thought it would be funnier if I tried to do the Norwegian in a Christopher Walken voice. Failed miserably. Ich bin ein Berlin. I don't no. know Christopher Walken. I, I can't do a good Christopher Walken impression. You <laughs> get it on there. Get the hell away. It's not a dog. It's a thing. It's imitating a dog. It's not real. Get away, you idiots. 
I, I knew a little bit about the thing just because I know that there was like that remake or prequel, whatever. It was a direct before. prequel, apparently. Same title, direct prequel that told oh, yeah. the story of the Norwegian outpost. Which was awful. It was an abomination. They uh, did CGI monster effects. It, here's the thing. Apparently they had filmed it with all practical effects and the spirit of the original thing in the studio did not like them and ordered them to do CGI over all of the practicals. Which is I stupid. hope that movie comes out with the original effects restored someday. Footage but, is out there. I've not personally seen it, Austin. It's, it's on the special features of the DVD. You can see some of the stuff. Are you they, serious? Yeah, yeah. Some yeah. of the stuff they put together. But I don't think it's shot from any angle or like it's, you know, from the dailies. So, you know, any dreams you're having of recobbling a cut with the practical effects in there can be dashed away right now. They, they okay. did it with Star Wars. They despecialized it. But the 2011 thing isn't Star Wars. Yeah, the so 2011 thing is happen. the 2011 thing, which it, it, Mary Elizabeth Winstead has piqued my curiosity enough that I intend to watch it at some point. It's kind of like Rogue One and Star Wars Episode Four, and that you could watch them together seamlessly. But like the first one, you'd be like, it's a so mediocre, it's a bad movie. Mm-hmm. And then like halfway through, it turns it into this like kick-ass '80s movie with all like the the John Carpenter style music, even though it wasn't John Carpenter that did most of the composition. It was motherfucking Ennio Morricone, wasn't yeah. it? You know, I, apparently, I, I didn't watch the documentary, but I did read a lot about it. Apparently, John Carpenter went to him because that, he was the only composer he trusted to be able to recreate his style. There was actually a first, <laughs> there was actually a first choice, according to the TV Tropes page. I'm going to pull it up, but if we can keep vamping, I'll find it in a second. Anyway, so what I was going to say, though, so I knew a little bit about the thing just because I knew that it was recreated. So in the beginning, when they're shooting at this dog, and they're missing horribly. Like they have fucking stormtrooper aim. <laughs> like seriously, mm-hmm. this they're isn't called from a helicopter. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but like you know, <laughs> Daniel, I dare you to get into a helicopter with a weird ass gun from the eighties. Am uh, I in the Norwegian military, Jackson? Yes. Yeah, I am. Okay, cool. Then, <laughs> then what the fuck did you say about me, you little shit? I'll have you know that I graduated the top of my class. your husky sniping class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But no, but in all seriousness, though, I knew, I, I knew what was happening right away just because I know a little <laughs> bit about the thing. I was just like, okay, so that dog is the thing. It's, it, it's horror movie trope. Like, uh, yeah, and I mean, that's only because I'm 22 years old, I live in 2019, and I know a little bit about the thing. So I was just like, okay, I can kind of guess what's happening right now. But during the reveal... Of when the dog became the thing. That yeah. was like, whoa. Yeah, like, no. that was still shocking. That practical effect was fantastic. Like, <laughs> I, I love the practical effects in part because they're dated enough that I can laugh at them because some of the puppeteering is great and some of it is just off enough. Like the uh, skull falling out of the flower petal mouth. I thought that was. I thought that was on purpose. What did you? It was on purpose, but it it looked like an accident, and therefore I thought it was hilarious. It was hilarious, but it was also just terrifying because it was just like, oh, I'm done with this. Now I'm moving on. (laughs) Did you watch it in like 1080 or 4K? Uh, we pulled what was the uh resolution? I think it was 1080 downscaled from the 4K. Oh yeah, that that's gonna mess it up a little bit. See, I thought it was fine. I was still pulled from the Blu-ray because, uh, like, I've you know I've said a lot. The the thing should 
uh, should be watched on VHS at least one in your life, <laughs> once in your life, because the VHS quality completely masks all of the weird things and the practical effects, mm-hmm. and sure, it also actually. has that weird distortion, especially with an old tape, that just adds a more unsettling feel to it. When I watched it, I didn't really... The good parts of the effects were so like viscerally disturbing to mm-hmm. me that I couldn't bring myself to laugh at them. It was just so disturbing watching, and especially because it's dogs. That's yeah. fair. Backtracking a bit, I found uh, the original choice of composer was Jerry Goldsmith, but he passed on doing the opportunity. Uh, who the fuck is that? Let's see what Jerry Goldsmith has done. Let's divert on this. I but do I, agree that it's like the VHS would mask it, but it's pretty good. Uh, the, the analogy would be the thing on high settings is to watch it in the 1080p or 4K copy, but on ultra settings, is it grainy VHS? See, the thing is, it's like playing an old game in 1080, right? If you play like... Max Payne or Half-Life. Yeah. There's something like that. You, the aliasing gets a little bit weird. You notice a lot more of the problems in the textures just because it's upscaled and stuff like that. Yeah. That's my, that's my analogy. Sure. Also, the thing got big on VHS. Mm-hmm. That's almost... And it was shot in anamorphic, too, so it doesn't actually cut out too much. Well, it does, but not. it isn't like as bad as it could be brought down to standard definition. Yeah, the the effects hold up a lot better in that case. Not that they don't. I mean, also we're trained a lot more to see that kind of thing. In 1981, Mm -hmm. that was something that hadn't been done. And it's one of those things where it was just so real at the time that that's part of why it got a lot of bad reviews because it looked like an actual slaughterhouse to them. Yeah. I mean, the closest comparison there was Alien, and Alien was a lot of work. Remember, this was a time where it was still 50-50 whether or not they showed blood and gunshots, if not, like, 2080. Oh, by the way, (laughs) because we keep looping back to the composer, Jerry Goldstein did uh, Alien. Goldsmith. Did Alien, Poltergeist, Chinatown, In Harm's Way, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Planet of the Apes, Patton, and Papillon. The Did a lot of, of the Epis. Jerry Goldsmith, you magnificent bastard. Did the re- soundtrack to Patton. He he was nominated for uh, 18 Academy Awards and won one for, I think, good, The Good Omen. So he's like the Meryl Streep of the composer world. Sure. <laughs> and he passed on this, which... Uh, 18 Academy Awards? Those are fucking... That, that's the opposite of rookie numbers. Okay. <laughs> rookie numbers. It's like... It's kind of perfect that they got Ennio Morricone because... He did this, if you don't know, he did the soundtrack for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, all of the Fistful of Dollars series with uh, Clint Eastwood, which is some of the best, most iconic, and strangest music for any film. So I could see why he would be a second choice, like a natural one, because the kind of movies he's known for are kind of like large-scale cult classics, kind of like The Thing. And The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah, and that one Joan Baez song and from the Metal Gear Solid Five trailer. Let's be real for a few dollars more. Like I, I've never met someone in the wild that's actually seen that movie. Plenty that has seen a fistful of dollars, and a ton that has seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, but never anyone that's seen for a few dollars more. I still want to watch the whole fistful of dollars like movies with you one day because oh. I've seen bits of Good, Bad, and the Ugly, but I really want to watch it. Oh yeah, it's my favorite movie. I know. <laughs> I know that, yeah. and that's why I really want to watch it. Oh gosh. There's, there's a odd... I don't know, the direction in The Thing and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is like 
nothing alike, but it's so strange. Like, it hasn't had the Seinfeld effect where people have repeated it. It's just never... People have tried to repeat the style, and, like, even Quentin Tarantino couldn't pull it off in The Hateful Eight, which... Kind of the same deal for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Only Sergio Leone could make that movie. Mm-hmm. We we were watching the documentary, and we there was a point where John Carpenter, smoking a cigarette indoors, uh, <laughs> admits he's just like, yeah, so when we were working on the script, we knew that there were women working in Antarctica, but we were just like, nah, fuck it, let's make it all dudes. So this was sort of like the anti-Ghostbusters. They knew that it would be more realistic to have women in the movie, and then just went, nah, sausage fest. Yeah, he was just like, I thought it would be more interesting to have all men. I was just like, okay, I mean, like, fine. Like, why'd you bring that up? It's an odd concept of the time, and I'm sure it was prompted by a question in the interview. I think it was just, they didn't want to bring seduction as a concept into the film, which didn't necessarily have to be there if a woman were present, but it was something that, it was the 80s, the early 80s even, so it would have probably been expected at the time, and they just didn't want to deal with the uh, complications of trying to subvert audience expectations there. That's actually fair, actually. (laughs) And like, I don't want to be apologetic about it, though. It was a different time, but also like... Another thing I saw was that... It was uh, a different time, but yeah. They thought men would be more expendable in the eyes of the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, which sense. makes sense. And I don't know, maybe they thought that it would increase the level of isolation. or Because there's very few creature comforts other than you know, constantly drinking very expensive whiskey. You know, the movie is shockingly not homoerotic for the 80s. For yeah. The sauce <laughs> Well, that's only because nobody can trust each other, so there's no bonds to build. I mean, yeah, but who doesn't want to see uh, Keith David and Kurt, Kurt Russell, Russell cross? Yeah. That was one uh, thing that I thought was really interesting, just how how much they really hit home on the isolation theme. Because, like, they are a bunch of people just sitting in all together, and they are isolated, like, totally. But then they get even more isolated within themselves when they realize that, holy crap, one of us might be an alien. <laughs> <laughs> so that I just I think that's a really cool like theme and just concept of just like everybody is isolated within themselves. There's a lot to unpack with the themes in the movie and just like they made it so deliberately ambiguous that I've seen all kinds of arguments about it. The nature of the monster, what the characters are thinking and what their motives are. They made a video game. Uh, that was a sequel. direct sequel. That you played as uh, Kurt Russell after uh, Keith, after the events of it. Keith David and Frozen, Kurt Russell is alive and gets rescued, but apparently, I guess, because it's a video game sequel to The Thing, The Thing must get out again. Yeah. Of course, yeah. And then he, uh, it's a straight-up action game. It too. just latches onto the helicopter, and then yeah. it's the beginning of Sonic Adventure well, 2. It makes sense. <laughs> well, I was thinking Spider-Man 3, like when Venom, like, late like jumps on the back of that motorcycle that's so scary <laughs> do you really think peter parker was cool enough to own a, a motorcycle it was a scooter at best shut the fuck up <laughs> i haven't seen much of the game but to my understanding it's an action game which makes sense because mccready uh kurt russell's character was an action hero in the wrong genre Basically, yeah. Yeah. Th- that got said last night on Jackson's first viewing experience. I think it was you who said it. Yeah, you know, it, Kurt Russell thinks he's in an yeah, action. Yeah. Movie. It's not Kurt Russell thinks he's in an action movie. This is Josh brought it to attention. It's an out of genre experience, but 
Kurt Russell is in an action movie, and anytime the horror movie gets in his way, he's inconvenienced by it rather than falling prey to it. <laughs> so, like, he's inconvenienced by the fact that not Keith David uh, left him out to die in the snow because he thought he was a thing. So he breaks in with a flare and dynamite, ready to blow everyone to hell because he's annoyed that the horror movie got in the way of him. <laughs> you know, I've never seen this work in a movie other than The Thing, too. Because they never get the mix quite right. Like, there's a lot of movies where there's, like, some crazy action person with guns that goes off to fight the monster and immediately, like, gets killed or something. But in The Thing, if... It, I have a sneaking suspicion that if everyone else hadn't made a bunch of bad decisions out of paranoia and just listened to McCready, they would have beat the monster. Also, but then they wouldn't have had an excuse to drive a bulldozer through the set. Like, yeah. Right? They didn't do that for a reason. Uh, I had this suspicion going throughout it. Like, why aren't they just listening to this guy? He's making a lot of, like, salient points and seems to understand the situation better than all of them. Well, they're not listening to him because he might be the thing. Yeah, but also, like... Which is what I think is awesome. <laughs> and, like, I understand that. And I understand, like, if you're, if you're, like, the commanding officer in an Arctic base, you might not appreciate being tied to a fucking couch while people turn into monsters next to you and get burned with a flamethrower at close range. Fair. Speaking of which, his character design is the best for any character in any movie. Who are we talking about? I won't about? die on that hill, but... That's what I'm going to say right now. McCready. Oh, yeah. It's just some bearded dude who pours whiskey on computers when they have glitches in a chess game with a flamethrower. An Antarctic cowboy goddess is how I described yeah. him. He wears a cowboy hat and flies a helicopter. It's just like, it's like, it reminds me of like my uncles or something. <laughs> I want to meet your uncles. <laughs> <laughs> or I don't know if I want to meet your uncles, but they sound like interesting people. <laughs> I, really I really don't know if you do. Uh, they're not. They're not fun. That's not like a fun kind of person to be around in real life. But like, if you wound up stranded in Antarctica, being attacked by like a heavy metal version of the Borg. Like, <laughs> I like I like the parallel how the movie begins with McCready battle like doing a sort of like silent battle with a non-human you know entity because he's playing computer chess at the time so the screenwriter you know was tipping his hat at you but I think this whole movie was actually a really convoluted scheme because you know he leads them ultimately to blowing up everything on the base and everyone but him in a sort of we're not getting out of here death situation because he didn't want them to realize he poured whiskey on their expensive chess <laughs> if you watch closely the computer does cheat that move yeah no it, it <laughs> yeah. absolutely would not have been a checkmate but it declares checkmate anyway because it's a computer from 1980 fucking two of course it, it doesn't work it right like i play a lot of bethesda games like fallout and like, <laughs> if i had that kind of anger management issue i would have gone through so many computers at this point <laughs> it's a good it's a good parallel for the entire movie too because the the monster is basically cheating and how powerful Powerful it is. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can't imagine a more powerful horror movie monster than the thing. Can you like think of one? I mean, it's definitely a glass cannon though, because if you catch it mid transformation, it's just kind of screwed. No, well, yeah, but it can go from a single cell to assimilating an entire human. Where yeah. the only way they could contain it was for it to be in Antarctica and freeze to death. <laughs> 
It, it's like accidentally made its way onto Antarctica a hundred thousand years ago. It's like the difference between a hurricane and a tornado for horror movie villains, where like Godzilla's big, right, and he's hard to kill, but he's just like goes in a line and destroys everything in a line. The thing would like kill everyone on the planet if it got out of Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, like, if it had crashed at Roswell, maybe we are all infected and that movie's real and that's the way it's trying to tell us. It's, well, it's, it was only three years before uh, containment, before uh, all life would be assimilated, based on the calculation. Oh yeah, so I uh, I ran the calculation. So it said that uh, the total time was how how many hours? Uh, 27,000 or 270,000 hours, which would... Uh, yeah, I think it was like 27,000 hours. It basically said three years. In three years, everybody would be contaminated by the thing. So that Bowling for Soup song, 1985, needs to be retooled, where it's just like, and we all got taken over by a parasite that year. <laughs> we freezing Madonna. We got infected by the thing. <laughs> That's another conspiracy theory I could latch on to. Everything since 1985, we're all just in the same, we're all infected by the same alien parasite. So, um, one of the interesting things that um, the guy who uh, got his chest cavity opened, yeah, um, he was talking in the behind-the-scenes thing that we were that we were watching earlier, and one of the things that he was saying was in the script when he's he's handed like leadership position, yeah, in the script, and he, immediately he turns it down and he just says, "I don't think I'm the guy for the job," and he says that. And I have actor training, so I find this really interesting. And he says that he really delved into his character, and he feels like his character kind of knew subconsciously that he was infected, or like the thing kind of took him over. So he, there was just something in him that knew, like, I'm not the guy to take over. And I, I just think that's so interesting because it's just like how it's this single cell organism that can just take over a human. Mm -hmm. And that's literally what it was. It was just this one little germ that probably just got into him. And then he was just like, oh! I, I, I just, I feel off. This, I'm are, not the guy for the job. There are a lot of bodily fluids. Uh, Windows, the comms operator who gets eaten by the junkie, I guess, the hippie with weed yeah. and the anarchy yeah. jacket, yeah. Uh, Windows was playing his character as if he thought he was the thing and didn't know <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> and you can see that throughout the whole thing. During the blood-burning sequence, uh, there, was, there was a bit of like a fair given to the fact that he, had, he has this evil, like, downward Kubrick stare that he makes when um, McCready's about to test his blood. And you're just like, so he's the thing, you know? Because there's no, like, that body language only telegraphs, oh, fuck about to have to spring into action to get the tentacles out but then no it's it's not him that entire scene it first off is the only jump scare that got me and it's just because it comes out of nowhere it's paced perfectly so it's kind of the perfect jump scare that will never not get somebody it's the only jump scare in the movie uh, there's <laughs> one of two one you of can, two there's you can count one. the uh, stomach coming open as a uh, what did you say when you first saw the stomach come open today it was something along the lines of holy fuck well, it, is, <laughs> it was something along those lines I like freaked out but I wasn't not, expecting that. I, I wouldn't call it a jump scare because it's so slow. It lets you take in all of the shit that happens. Yeah, so, like the ribs were contorted into yeah. teeth. <laughs> My, and you like get it. You yeah. get it in your head, and it's like when you see slow motion, something bad about to happen to you, and you're like, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck. Because yes. like, yeah, there's a sequence yes. to it. I, my definition of a jump scare is literally just like, like that's my definition of a jump scare. Everything is normal, and then all of a sudden it's not normal and it's spooky, and that's lame. That's lame as shit. <laughs> but like, in the thing, it's 
during that scene, it's shit's fucked. Like, See, we're all freaking also, out. I, I was gonna say, the jump scare, building off what you're saying, though, in the movie, like, the blood thing, is plot-driven. Yeah, exactly! <laughs> it makes sense! It's, it, not... it's just like, it's like he's just trying to save this guy, and then all of a sudden, oh, his chest is just teeth now. <laughs> nobody knows exactly, yeah, nobody knows exactly who the, uh, who the dog walked into. It's, it, it, it's more or less confirmed to be, uh, Anarchy Jacket. I will never remember his name, because all these characters have weird names, and I only remember the ones that really matter. McCready, Childs, and, oddly enough, Copper. Well, well they did the, <laughs> uh, windows. they did the thin blue line thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an actor that was in the movie that cast the shadow. Bastards. Mm. Bastards. Right? How dare they? Right? To be fair, everybody had, like, almost the same hairstyle. They had one of two <laughs> hairstyles or bald. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Uh, uh, we were coming back to that sequence where they're all tied to the couch and, and it's horrifying. Yes, and the first of all, the effect they used was basically Kurt Russell had a fake hand that was set to, like, quick inflate a little thing to hop out of the... Uh, petri dish when he put the wire in kurt russell didn't know what would set it off so his reaction is genuine oh. he knew it was supposed to set off when he put the wire in but he didn't know how long it would take or how it would look then anarchy jacket turns into a thing and kind of smashes his feet through the floor lifts up the whole couch and then flies and hangs into the ceiling for five minutes out of nowhere mm -hmm. and to me that's really amusing and it gets funnier when it takes windows head and flops it around and all of a sudden it's like a straw rag doll that's oh just gosh. flopping about oh the screen <laughs> for almost 30 seconds did you watch the video i sent you no, I did not the see thing, uh, the musical. The thing, the musical, is one of my favorite videos. It goes oh to the God. entirety of the thing in the style of, like, Frank Sinatra or, like, some 60s crooner. Uh, <laughs> what? And the sequence in the video there is, makes it look like a tap dance. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing, a, like, a top hat. <laughs> he just, like, stomps through the floor and lifts up the whole couch, and Keith David and Gary are video. freaking out. Send me this video it. after this. Yeah, we'll watch it after. It sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I know all the lyrics to it, but I'm not going <laughs> to we're not getting a live performance of the thing, the musical, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't want to get copyright strike. <laughs> it's, it's really worth a watch, though. Go check it out. Also, uh, there's a lot of weird kind of, like, intentional inconsistencies in the movie, how Anarchy Jacket reacts, even though he's already infected, to the head crab trying to scuttle away behind McCready. He just says, you gotta be fucking kidding. Oh. As, and it, because he's infected, you don't know if he is trying to stay in character or if he's like, seriously, did I do that? Did I seriously try to get away with this? Or no, like, <laughs> he might not know he's infected. That's a part of the movie where, like, McCready cool. may not know. Mm -hmm. And it, like... Wait, was McCready infected? Well, it's always yeah. ambiguous. And But, like, Child's right. There's a big implication that he is. That's Keith David. Because he keeps challenging Kurt Russell into making, like, bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And the implication is that he's infected and trying to steer them off. Right. But you don't actually know. That's mm -hmm. what I love about this movie, honestly. I like the ambiguous ending. Personally, I, I don't always believe in the heroes win, but I think in this one it's kind of suitable because they're dying anyway. They might as well have died for a good cause. But apparently the cable cut fades to black like the actual John Carpenter version that we've all seen, the actual cut. But the cable cut then opens up to another husky running from the ruins as a narrator that was present in the beginning of the cable cuts describes that the thing lives on and it could be anybody. 
that lives to write another day. Yeah. There's also an alternate ending where uh, McCready is getting blood tested and it confirms he isn't the thing. Yeah, yeah we watched that, that. Yeah. That is where the video game starts. Yeah. <laughs> it, okay. it was shot because they were worried that the studio would say, hey, we don't like your ambiguous ending. You better film a nice ending. And they didn't want to pay exorbitant amounts of money that they couldn't afford to get Kurt Russell back for the scene. So they just shot it and at, for safety. Thankfully, it never came up, but it was something that exists. And I wonder if they've ever released the footage. You know, I'm also almost always against having like overly nihilistic uh, endings. I think it usually just comes off as edgy mm-hmm. instead of something like smart. Mm-hmm. Because edgelords confuse being edgy with smart all the time. Now that's yeah. edgy uh, as fuck. But in this movie, it really works because it bookends the beginning where he's like cheating bitch and pours whiskey on it. He mm-hmm. just does that on a grand scale at the end. He's when he realizes he can't win. This movie is distinctly 80s too because in a modern day movie, everybody would ask, hey, what's the point of this Arctic research station? And they would try to explain what they're doing. Here, it's just an Arctic research station definitely noted as on the helicopter, but we don't know fuck all about what they're doing and they have access to dynamite and flamethrowers at least two flamethrowers and at least 40-plus sticks of dynamite. Well, that's realistic, actually. They use flamethrowers to melt ice in uh, Arctic research stations because it's a quick way to melt it if you're about to be buried. And I think same with dynamite. They can use it to quickly clear a bunch of snow that suddenly falls on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how... I don't think you would survive Because the Antarctic's a desert, actually, and it doesn't really snow there. It just has a lot of snow that never melts. Yeah. But that's getting really nitpicky. And yeah. I also am not an expert in Arctic research stations. Yeah. There's a what? Weird... <laughs> yeah, I'm We're sorry. We're talking about a movie, and we don't know Arctic research stations? Oh, my uh, God. There's, like, 12 people that live in Antarctica. <laughs> and, they... the f- and, like, most of them died in this movie. And you're not one of them? <laughs> right. And also... It's... It's, it's a tradition in the Antarctic Research Station in the U.S. the U.S. owned one that right after the last plane leaves before the winter blackout, where no supplies can come in until spring's dawns, because in Antarctica once it hits winter, sun's down all the time and winds can get pretty heavy up there, which whip up blizzards. Even though it doesn't actually like precipitate snow, it moves the snow around. It's a tradition to watch the thing every year right after the last plane departs. Oh, That's terrifying. <laughs> That's so scary. <laughs> <laughs> the original thing is actually on a TV in the background somewhere. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? That's nice. I think it was... That's cool. I'm not sure if it was in this movie or if it was in uh, Escape from New York, which was filmed before this movie. Maybe it was both. Uh, I'm pretty sure it happened in this one, but I can't recall where. I haven't seen it in a while. That's funny. Because uh, I... <laughs> I wasn't able to watch it these last few days. I used to have this photograph that I would take out on my phone at parties, and because uh, there's one big general store in all of Antarctica, like it, like there's one, one shop, right? Are you serious? Yeah, it's, it, in, it's in a town in, in Antarctica. How are they still open? Uh, did they just get shipments, and they, they, they dole out supplies to scientists, and I don't know if they're only open in the summer seasons, but there is one shop in Antarctica, and go like, easy Google search, you can find the liquor aisle. So I would show people... <laughs> 
the picture of the liquor aisle and just be like, this is the only liquor aisle on one continent of the planet. Of course you would know the fucking liquor aisle. <laughs> and I, after watching this movie, I was just like, man, I wouldn't even go to that store anymore. I'd just go wherever Kurt Russell's going because he has a never-ending supply of expensive whiskey. D&B whiskey. I'm not sure if that's the actual brand or if that that's the most prominent logo, quote-unquote, on it. Like, how, uh, how... He would walk into that how store. How much does he make? That's got to be expensive. I He's got to order like it in bulk, so he has to have a lot of liquid assets at once. <laughs> Does he like take out loans? I mean, Arctic <laughs> research is weird to to a degree. I think that there is a degree of spending personal money to have things shipped, and then there's also like basic supplies that are auto provided, and then on the shipments you can spend some of the salary you make to get it shipped out uh, bulk as well of well, other things. Assuming that this is the military in the 1980s, all they would have to do is just you know smuggle some crack cocaine into some inner city neighborhoods in California and then bam <laughs> slush fun for all the whiskey Kurt Russell can drink you know we did it with the Contras let's give our boys up in Antarctica some fucking hooch and maybe <laughs> gonna yeah. be lit maybe 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 the just like, expose the thing to cocaine maybe like the cover-up people were right and like they weren't doing that to the Contras they were just doing it to supply Kurt Russell with it in the supply of like movie Hennessy or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. That's like, that's just like what they do. They're like, this guy's too cool. It's interesting how the casting lined up because very few of the roles that were cast were written for the people that got cast. Like, uh, McCready was written for somebody more along the lines of Clint Eastwood or Harrison Ford, and it ultimately really? landed with Kurt Russell. But, I mean perfect casting Keith David was great and in fact somehow Austin and I were sure that it wasn't Keith David until we watched the credits today after watching for the second time how can you not identify Keith David immediately because he shouts his voice can get into the baritone octave when he's shouting and he shouts a lot more in this than he does in anything else I've watched him in this was his first major movie Mm -hmm. I really only know Keith David as the arbiter (laughs) (laughs) which is objectively one of his best roles but still Hey, hey, you, you Philistines, you haven't seen They Live? No. Oh. I've never heard of They Live. So. How have you never heard of They Live? Because I'm a fucking mini. Like, I don't know. See, <laughs> it, it, if you watch They Live after this, I don't so, give a fuck. So, like, They Live is, like, uh, a weird paranoia movie about, like, this guy who gets special sunglasses. He's also played by a pro wrestler. Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he gets special sunglasses that when he when he sees through them, he could see that, like, all the rich and powerful people are aliens, and they put subliminal messages on billboards. So the reptiles. Like, eat. It's kind so, of the origin of the whole reptile so theory. His, uh, I'm in. Let's watch it. His response to this information is to buy a shotgun and decide to kill as many of them as possible. Uh, and he meets up with Keith David, and they have a, a little spat, and they get into a 15-minute fist fight that Keith David choreographed with a fucking pro wrestler. I'm in. Where they actually, like, beat the shit out of each other. I'm in. Like, it was, like, real punches. I think there were, like, real, relatively serious injuries that came out of it, and it's kind of legendary. It's like watching Live Leak or something, but, like, on a silver screen. So we're watching The Thing, the musical, and then we're watching that right after this, right after we hit stop record. Isn't They Live also a Carpenter 
movie. Yeah. My mind's blanking. I'm pretty sure it is. So that's more so that's cool. additional like 80s magic. Carpenter was invincible for an entire decade while he made movies. To be fair, Carpenter had a breakdown and really didn't think he could make any more movies after the thing flopped so hard. And it took a, a while for him to build up confidence enough to go back to making movies. Is this one of the most like the critics were completely wrong at the time movies that's ever come out? I think while yes. I was in your car today, mm. the uh, the, the packets, the form, forms didn't submit or something. So uh, I searched, you know, Roger Ebert, the thing. And one of the links that came up was a BuzzFeed link saying Roger Ebert's most wrong review that he ever wrote. And I was, I, I couldn't get the Good page point. to load. So I don't know if it's discussing specifically his two and a half star review of the thing. But that th this, when this came out, people were just saying that it was sort of a mediocre, just kind of like, like, uh, you know how we respond to like torture porn these days? They yeah. Just like, oh, well, it's no, all, I don't actually. It's, it's all gore and spectacle and, and the movie itself is very bad and I just don't get okay. how you can you can be that cruel to this movie from a critical standpoint oh yeah we never really introduced the movie this movie regularly ends up on the top lists of horror movies on like any review site there it's yeah. one of the it's universally accepted to be one of the best horror movies ever made if not the best it's also kind of the definition of cult classic it was really one of those films that defined how cult classics come to be which is once they're on home media they just skyrocket and word of mouth is really what carried this movie back to the top i think it's graduated from cult to full-on like tax-exempt religion at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're definitely right on that front, and it, it's entirely thanks to the people that praise it as a cult movie and word-of-mouthed it to the point where everybody now who has any respect for horror as a genre watches the thing regularly. You want to know something weird that happened? Mm. I was with these children, right? Uh, me and my husband know this, like, family of Russian children, and they have children friends. And uh, they were, like, 13 or something, like, uh, a few of them. And they started talking about how when they were very young, like, you know, the sub-10 years old, the first horror movie that they were shown was The Thing. And that resonated with me because that first horror movie I was ever shown uh, was The Thing. Um, and so I was just wondering, because there were, like, three of them, I was just thinking, is this is this a really good introductory horror movie for kids? Because I don't even think you should show them any of the newer stuff that's gonna freak them out and give them nightmares. Show them the thing, because this is proof that if you're fucking awesome enough you could fight back against the scary thing dude i don't think you should show a kid the thing because it's just so fucking terrifying dude, that's it's like <laughs> that's like introducing a child to historical epics with the fucking movie caligula <laughs> what? If I was actual hardcore porn in it <laughs> if i was introduced to the thing as an eight-year-old i wouldn't trust literally anyone for like a year <laughs> i literally wouldn't because i would think that they were all infected by the thing I, it I, would be terrifying I loved the thing when I was a little kid. It was awesome. That's <laughs> cool, but I had a very active imagination. <laughs> I think that maybe I shot myself in the foot because I never approached horror from a film standpoint. Basically, the closest I got was the dog in Ghostbusters, which terrified my brother and I so much that we told, demanded our dad turn it off and we never revisited the movie. It's <laughs> funny because I was terrified of that too. And then cut forward to like 2011 and the ad campaign for Dead Space 2 made me so enticed to the game that I forced myself to play through it or watch my brother play through it. So watching this movie, I definitely did not resonate with any of the horror elements. I saw what they were doing and I thought, wow, if I actually like, 
if I actually was able, capable of being scared by something like this, I would appreciate the horror elements. But as it stands, this is an action movie that's waiting to turn into an action movie. Do you want to hear a story about how weird Josh was as a kid? Yes. So the sure. first movie I ever watched, like horror movie I ever watched, was the remake of The Fly. Mm-hmm. Whoa, okay. that's yeah. very similar. Yeah, okay, I yeah, yeah. I was, I was very shaken. My dad had to take me and play Worms Armageddon with me. <laughs> <laughs> I need to calm down. But how I found out about these movies and the thing actually was that I was a weird little kid that shouldn't have been given a computer and I would go on Wikipedia and read the synopses for a bunch of movies that I couldn't watch and didn't have access to and all like the production notes and stuff and I eventually convinced my dad to let me watch The Blob, the, the remake and Whoa! The Fly, the remake. And actually The Blob disturbed me way more as a kid because I am terrified of uh, bodies of water and like drowning in them and being thrown around in them because I was caught in a current in Mexico when I was also a small child. So that actually horrified me a lot more, and when I watched that movie later, I was like, this is hot garbage. (laughs) Why was I afraid of this? And the answer is probably because I was like eight. But yeah. <laughs> so out of curiosity, Jackson, what was the first horror movie you watched? So I know Austin and Josh's. What was the first one you watched? It might actually be this one if you consider Shaun of the Dead to not be a horror movie. Shaun of the Dead's not a horror. Not okay then, all. it's this one. Okay. Holy do you want to know my first horror movie? Yeah. The Blair Witch Project. Okay. Then. And do you want to know how I was able to watch it? My friend, who I watched it with, he really wanted to watch it that night. It was at a sleepover, and he had to spoil every single scene for me. Oh, I take it back. I take it back. My friends had a ring marathon, and I showed up for part of the ring, too. Okay, enough to say the ending. But, like, did you watch the the first full-length, like... Beginning to end horror movie. This one. The The uh, thing. The thing? thing. Yeah. Literally yesterday. I'm really averse to horror for some reason. No, and I honestly get that because I used to be very averse to horror. Um, And I, I still don't like, like, again, the jump scare horror of, like, just, hey, here's a creepy image because I get freaked out by creepy images and I just don't like them. But I love psychological horror where it's rooted in reality because then it's just like, holy fuck, I'm... Just following this person, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? This one's paranoia fueled, and that really grounds it in its uh, sense. To be fair, like I said, it didn't really scare me. I was startled by the jump scare, but the whole time I'm like, yeah, this thing isn't a necromorph, so what am I looking at here? But, and I, I was like looking at it from the perspective of these effects are cool, but some of it is dated to the degree where it's just kind of funny. Like the head that crawls away and then grows spider limbs and eye stalks and then scuttles away as if it's on wheels being dragged slowly by a string and the legs aren't really moving. That's funny as shit to me. It's funny that you say that because when I was watching the thing, that scene came up and I literally just screamed, what the fuck? I was terrified because I'm also arachnophobic. So seeing the legs come out of it, I was freaking out. Sorry. That was fun. Like, oh my god, that was and none of it to me at least, none of it looked over the top, just like, hey, we're just gonna spook you just to spook you. It just looked like, hey, here's this 
organism that's just trying to get away. It was grounded it in the was rules. So creepy. It was grounded in its rules very well, and more importantly, going back to constantly looping, the thing was constantly playing a chess game, specifically against McCready, who really was like its worst enemy. Yeah. How hard do you yeah. think the uh, How hard do you think the storyboard people high five when they're like, and the head's alive. And it's a spider. <laughs> let's, let's, let's play a short game here. How many movies plots would be resolved instantly if instead of the like their protagonist, it was R.J. McCready from The Thing? <laughs> <laughs> and same equipment from The Thing, too, where he's got a flamethrower and his sunglasses and a supply of whiskey. <laughs> we consider that... Die hard. Pro- pull no, guys. don't... It's, it's very important we can't forget the cowboy hat. Wait... Got Here's horses a thought. In the back. I play this game where it's just like, what movies can they make canon with each other and see how much sense it makes? Oh no. What if what if Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec is actually McCready after like severe <laughs> reconstructive surgery? <laughs> no, he just, got, he just got really fat after Antarctica. I was just like, I'm done with this. And but, then he slimmed down a bit and shaved all of the a, beard and got a normal person haircut. The thing is, he's kind of like, Ron Swanson's kind of like General Iroh though in The Last Airbender, that where he looks really like overweight, but in like in the show, he's just made of pure muscle. Yeah. So Parks and Rec and Avatar the Last Airbender are canon. No, it's that and the thing. So Park so the thing is like the backstory for uh all of for RJ McCready. He changed his name after witness protection was like you can't tell us you can't yes. tell anybody about what happened in Antarctica. Well, it's that's- a it's a fun game, I recommend it. My favorite example is Dirty Dancing in Roadhouse. <laughs> and my second favorite is actually Platoon and Scrubs. <laughs> because the character that the actor that plays Dr. Cox is also in Platoon, oddly enough, as it like this like kind of coward in Vietnam. Where so I figured maybe he got transferred after the events of Platoon and kind of pulled like uh, a Don Draper and his command or like what's his name Seymour uh, the principal from the Simpsons and his commanding officer died and he just took over his identity and got his medical degree. <laughs> where, where became a doctor? Where does Point Break fit into your nexus of things that are canon? Because John C. McKinley is the FBI boss, the uh, the guy from Doctor Cox from Scrubs, Don, John C. McKinley, and Patrick Swayze is the surfing villain. Maybe Dirty Dancing, Roadhouse, Point Break, Platoon, and Scrubs are all in this weird. <laughs> doesn't that also like? Nexus. Doesn't that tangentially make John Wick? In, in on those because Keanu's role in Point Break could easily be canon with John Wick. He is yeah, named John. It could be a backstory. Yeah. Yeah, because John Wick might probably isn't his real name. So, <laughs> like, maybe. It's I don't something, know. It's something Belarusian. Oh, maybe that was maybe that was just his adopted name, that's, too. The, yeah, yeah, his real name's it. like John Donny John Jonovich. What if like, it's just like Steve? Keanu Reeves. Here's my argument. Keanu Reeves is obviously not from Eastern Europe. Yeah. <laughs> He's half native Hawaiian. <laughs> He's he is a very, very mixed nationality if you oh, look nice. it up on Wikipedia. But he I makes mean, it work. Yeah. We could do a whole nother podcast on John Wick. Oh wait, we did watch that. We're going to <laughs> yeah, and sorry. we're gonna revi- revisit it once John Wick Parabellum is on Blu-ray. So oh, that yeah. we can dig into those special features and get all the juicy bits out of them. Oh, the good special features.
Oh, yeah. Where they all talk about, uh, according to Austin, they all talk about the same thing over the course of six special features. <laughs> yeah. They're so Keanu Reeves did all this training to do the thing, and then the sequel. Keanu Reeves did all this training to do the thing, and the third one. Keanu Reeves, oh, look at all yeah, this can we, okay. I, I would I would accept only one remake if it had Kurt Russ, if Keanu Reeves was a supporting character of the thing, and we got Kurt Russell and Keith David back to reprise their roles. How can I be sure that you're not infected? Dude, it would fit well in this like weird new genre of like geriatric action movies. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, it was refreshing to see something that was an actual '80s movie instead of an '80s style movie because they yeah. didn't have all of the dumb like fake you out bullshit, like diffusion filters over everything, these weird looking lens flares that are clearly fake, and yeah, you know, it's like like all of the machines actually have that shitty '80s machine quality to them, where everything like a, a, an unreasonable amount of the things are made out of actual metal. There's, like, barely any plastic in sight. See, like, there's so many, like, movies nowadays that are, like, trying really hard to be 80s, and it ends up just being, like, a theme park version that's mostly Miami Vice, <laughs> and synthesizers that are obviously modern, because 80 synthesizers sounded totally different, and also, you can't have CGI in an 80s movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like, the biggest complaint about all of these things. And then, like, you watch the thing, and it's just, like, pure 80s. The 80s came, like, instantly. Like, <laughs> as soon as 1980 turned around, disco died, movies got synthesizers, <laughs> it got a lot more violent. William H. Macy shot himself at the New Year's party in Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah. And, like, the <laughs> thing is, like, the quintessential 80s horror movie. Like, Halloween, you could argue, but that's technically the 70s. Halloween the thing has 78, if I'm remembering correctly. It, ha mm -hmm. it has the earworm stuck in your head whenever you think about its soundtrack, even though it's really stupid, simple on synth, and it somehow fits the tone of the movie really well mm -hmm. you got all the like this panoply of special effects that have not been matched to this day in the genre it's a massive mix just looking they did like for the ufo crashing on earth which is one of the uh less good looking one they did four passes of each shot to match to like map all of the lights on it and i'm like 80% sure most of it was, was not most of it but there was a heavy degree of claymation in this movie that's not easy to tell that it's claymation mm. until like towards the very end when the final form the Blair thing is bursting up through the floor and eats the TNT detonator well the opening part though was itself a retro reference to the 50s in the 50s style opening yeah so you're thinking it's going to be one of those man in a suit movies and then oh fuck it is not it's, it is oh, not a man in a suit movie really... it's a dog in a dog skin apparently it's a dog in a dog skin apparently when they were making it John Carpenter's biggest fear was that it would turn into a guy in a suit movie yeah that that's what we're it's They're, so interesting that you say that because when we were watching the behind the scenes documentary, that was the first thing he said. <laughs> there was one part where so it cool. almost turned into a guy in a suit movie, and it's it, it's just like for one thirty second bit, and it's where Gary gets taken over by Blair thing, and the hand just kind of melts into the oh mouth, but it maintains God. the form of Blair the I whole time. I disagree. That's it. He's not wearing a suit, but he is. He's wearing the suit of Blair. I see uh, what you're saying. <laughs> I see what you're saying, but I completely disagree. Also, that's the most, <laughs> to me, that's the most that's the most terrifying kill in the entire movie. Just, yeah, 
being yeah. mostly yourself, but your face is melded into like this horrible organism, and you're still aware, but you can't see, smell, or speak. You just suffocate you as, it's, just as it injects the cells in and takes you over. Yeah, that it's was the most horrifying part of the movie for me. Let's let's go around and do like a little a little campfire story that thing. What's what's the most horrifying and most awesome kill in your opinion? Uh, I mean, in the in the thing. Yeah, that one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, again, none of the movie really scared me other than the jump scare. I think the most awesome, in general, like the best use of the rules of the thing is when they're doing the blood test. And then we go from tension and paranoia of who is the thing to this creature leaping onto the ceiling and being stuck there despite having no way to jump that high, which... It, it was comical. Anytime I saw it, I was laughing my ass off, but it still looked really awesome. And then it it's a guy in a suit while also mixed with a couple other shots. There's one in a medium shot of Kurt Russell with a flamethrower where it passes through the foreground and it's very clearly a mannequin lit on fire <laughs> because it doesn't yeah. have like any locomotion whatsoever. And it's really funny, but then he just walks through the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and we're stuck with that. And yeah. then they just kind of torch poor Windows who's like, you're covered in the blood, so it's time. Oh yeah, no, I felt so bad for that guy. I was just like, we don't even know if he's in technically infected but he just gets torched and i was just like there's oof. no there can be no chances taken they recognize that it was I, fluid i agree but just like oof you know he's just burnt alive man like that's just the worst way to go it's a real ridiculous shepherd move yeah i, I had yeah. forgotten about the shot uh when we watched this again last night of the guy who's wrapped in the tentacle mm. and the, and then he goes away well you like the guy the guy's like oh fuck this goes to get the others and then comes back and he's gone that was crazy. That that actually scared me last night because I forgot that was in the movie. My mind always gravitates oh, to the, so the chest opening up and the uh, you know guy freaking out in the chair after his blood jumps out of the vial. Then there's this one real throwaway shot of this dude just in plain like you know some some like kind of a long shot getting just fucked up by a tentacle and he's covered head to toe in blood. And I was just like, oh my god! So that probably scared me the most on my like recent two viewings. Also, yeah. when they all get in a circle and burn it to death with flamethrowers, and it just kind of stays alive and walks around for a bit. That's fucking awesome. Who's, yeah. the mon who's the monster in that case? The people standing in an almost cult-like circle surrounding a corpse, or the alien? No, definitely on? the alien. Definitely the alien. The alien. <laughs> That's kind of a weird imagery to just everybody be standing in a circle around it while McCready holds a flamethrower and is the it's only one willing to do it. It's a weird imagery, but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. That's fair. Uh, it's a freaking alien that's going to just consume all of humanity. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do. That, I, I mean, how do you think the dogs and donkeys feel when they see us hitting pinatas? <laughs> <laughs> I do want to reference a scene that was cut, and it's in the storyboards. By the way, if you ever get a chance to look at the storyboards for this movie, they They're were really like, good. They were canvas paintings. They're the storyboarding really for this movie Whoa. is gorgeous to look at. But there was a scene that was storyboarded that was too expensive to really shoot in the final cut, and it sh it's Nal's death. The other black guy that's not Keith David. Yeah. Nalls walks off, and we never see him die. We just see the thing come out of the floor. But it was originally intended for you to hear him scream. And then, as it bursts out of the floor, the first thing to come up is Nalls' head as he's screaming, help me. And then it's revealed that his entire torso is, like, assimilated to the thing as tentacles are, like, writhing in it. And he's still conscious. And then tentacles just, like, go... He's missing, like, a hand. Go in and start bursting apart his chest before one, like 
bursts out of his mouth and silences him. That would have been probably the most frightening kill if it had made it into the movie. It's Fucking brutal. Uh, what about the guy that just is gone? Oh, uh, he burns himself. Yeah, uh, it's not. It's the other guy who wasn't. Wait, the dog. somebody burns himself. I don't yeah, though he basically walks outside after the light goes out. It's the only other jump scare in the movie where somebody passes right in front of the doorway that he's in. Yeah, and so that was a lame we, jump scare. We don't know. Yeah, it was lame, which is why it's barely worth noting. But it is one of two jump scares in the whole movie. Yeah, and I even remember going past that scene and just being like, oh, that was a jump scare? Okay. Yeah, I And uh, he goes outside wondering, like, who it was that blew the fuse in the science lab while he was doing research so he couldn't see. He turns around, and then it cuts to another scene, and then they later, where McCready is like, hey, you've been gone for... He's been gone for an hour and a half. Who did it? And then they go outside, and they find that he burned himself alive with his flare. To avoid being taken over. Yeah, it was it was kind of cool, but it, it's it's like the one who's just gone. That's the only example I can think of other than Blair, who was last seen having built a noose and then is just sitting there eating beans. The diabetes man. Um, <laughs> Wilford yeah, Brimley. Wilford Brimley's in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> diabetes. Yeah, he's not just in a diabetes commercial. He's actually in movies. Uh, did you say diabetes? I, uh, I believe it's diabetes. 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 That... To me, really got me because they they locked. So he's destroying all the communications so that way the thing can't escape Antarctica. And then they realize that oh shit, this man's crazy. So they lock him in a fucking cabin. And then while he's in this cabin, all he does is make a noose. And then he's like, "Can I come out?" And I'm just like, I would let that man out. I just made a noose, man. Here's the thing. He's he's clearly infected by that point, and once he breaks out, is stealing parts from the helicopter to build the spaceship. But there's the prevailing theory out there is that he knew he was infected and tried to build the noose to kill himself, but he couldn't he got to the point where he hung it up before the creature took full control of him. And that's so cool. <laughs> because again, I, when I was first watching this movie, I just see a man in a cabin who just made a noose asking to come out. I would let that man out in a heartbeat. <laughs> you would lo- you would lose Sorry. the horror movie, by the way. I would... Uh, no, if I was in a horror movie, I'd die. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, no questions asked. I have too big of a heart, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> New Tinder profile idea for all you out there. If I was in a horror movie, I'd die. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess this is it. We don't really have a joke to devolve into other than if you would like a new Roomba, consider the head Roomba. It even has legs to help locomote in areas where the wheels won't work properly. And its yeah. eye stalks mean that it won't bump into things randomly. It sees what's coming, so it can avoid barriers. <laughs> and it can grow its own steak knife. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we... Why would we have a steak knife on a Roomba? Have you not heard crap? I've heard of this meme. Oh, I'm aware of the meme and like stabby, but still. That's like, no one would actually do that. I don't know. People ate Tide Pods. (laughs) (laughs)